Hello, this is the HSJ Health Trip podcast. I'm your host, Annabelle Collins, and I'm joined by correspondents Joe Talora and Emily Townsend. On this episode, we'll be talking more about HSJ research, which has found most GP practices in England are still relying on old-fashioned paper records, despite a national commitment to digitise them. And we'll cover the impact this could be having on patient safety. Also this week, mental health patients are regularly spending over 12 hours waiting in A&E departments. And new data seen by HSJ has revealed the true scale of these long waits. I'll be talking more to Emily about these concerning findings and also what acute trusts are planning to do about it. But first, let's talk about GP records and and bringing you in, Joe. And and I know that you've made time for us um, while you're at an HSJ um, data and analytics event. So thanks very much for that. Um, and so, yeah, this this was some research that you carried out. It would be interesting to hear kind of, I suppose, first of all, what, what kind of piqued your interest, sort of why you did this and also what you found? Yeah, so um, this is all to do with a commitment made in the 2019 GP contract um, where NHSE made a commitment to digitise all of the paper uh, Lloyd George records, so the sort of iconic brown envelopes where everyone's paper records are stored. Um, and essentially, I'd seen a, a contract, um, a procurement contract put online for for this to happen. Um, and I was made aware that this was supposed to have happened quite a long time ago. So I thought, I wonder how many GP practices actually have already done this. Um, so I FOI'd all 42 integrated care boards uh, and I asked them, firstly, how many GP practices are within your ICS and then how many of those GP practices are still either storing or using the, the paper Lloyd George records. That's interesting. So yeah, what, what did what did the um, findings um, reveal? So out of the 42 ICBs, 32 got back to me with the information that I requested. Um, and quite interestingly, it was a bit of a mixed picture. So 18 of the ICBs said that all GP practices within their system uh, were still either storing or using the, the Lloyd George envelopes. Um, in 13 ICBs, uh, there was uh, a mixture of those that had digitised and those that haven't. Uh, and just one ICB, Sussex, um, responded that none of their GP practices use the Lloyd George records anymore. Um, so clearly a bit of a, a mixed bag. Hmm. And I wonder what did you, did you kind of get a sense of some of the barriers that are stopping practices from moving away from this really old fashioned um, way of keeping records and moving to, you know, think, keeping things online and kind of fulfilling fulfilling this commitment in the GP contract? Yeah, so I think it's probably important to say, first of all, that these records aren't sort of widely used in the day to day care of patients. Um, they're more uh, referring to historical information. So they stopped being used regularly about 20 years ago. And primary care is probably one of the more digitally mature aspects of the NHS. Um, the issue is when a GP gets to access historical data, um, you know, if, if there's gaps in the electronic record, if they need to check something. Some of the barriers, I suppose funding is a big one. Um, so when this was first announced in 2019, uh, the BMA pushed back on it a little bit and said they supported the idea, but there needs to be some centralized funding um, and whilst there has been uh, sort of pilot projects where you know select sites have been chosen to digitise, as far as I could tell, there hasn't been uh, sort of one big national pot of money um, for ICBs to draw from and, and deliver to their GP practices. I think in some ICBs, 
they have themselves provided money for GP practices, but the GPs I spoke to um, have said, those that have digitized said that they did that off their own back. Um, and they, they've said that, you know, GP practices aren't going to fund this themselves if either money's been promised or there's a potential of money out there. So I think funding is definitely one of the, the big barriers to this. Hmm. Do you get a sense that um, GPs want this to happen or is there a sense of actually these these are old records? Um, as you said, they've not been regularly used for, for 20 years. Do you think that maybe some of them think there are better things that this kind of money and time could be spent on perhaps? Yeah, so back back in 2019 when this commitment was made, I think there was a bit of pushback from, from GPs purely just because of the amount of work that it would take. Um, I, I saw an article, you know, estimated millions of hours of extra work for GPs to, to digitize because what, what it entails is physically taking the record. You've got to hire a company to take them off site to a warehouse, scan them, upload them and then destroy them. And it's it's quite a long process. So I, I think there was some pushback. And um, as you say, that they're, they're old records, they're not used in the day to day care of patients anymore. So I think in some cause it was seen maybe as a bit fanciful. Um, I think the opinions change slightly now. So one of the GPs I spoke to was one of those GPs who back in 2019 thought, you know, it's quite a lot of work for something that might not be important. Um, their practice has now digitized and, you know, they told me it's actually been a massive, uh, a massive benefit to their, their patients and their staff. Um, and I think some of the GPs I spoke to whose practices hadn't digitized, uh, when I asked them if it was, you know, a fanciful thing that wasn't a priority, um, they said, oh, actually, no, it's something that it would, would quite like to do and, and would make a difference. Mm, and I was thinking as well about GP practices, a lot of them really don't have a lot of space and some of them are quite mm. old buildings. I imagine that boxes and boxes of old records take up quite a lot of room. So I imagine that some of them might be quite keen to free up that space. Yeah, so one of the sort of drivers of this was, I mean, the, the main reason this was, was done was, sort of, um, I believe the Department of Health said it was to do with person-centred care. But one of the other big benefits is the estates aspect of it. Um, you know, these are records that are stored in huge sort of carousels. Um, one of the GPs I spoke to said that since they've digitised their records, they've managed to free up three extra rooms in their practice. Oh, wow. And they're now used by uh, mental health practitioners, paramedics and other, uh, you know, community um, health people. So the, the estates aspect is definitely one of the big benefits, um, not just from a point of view of freeing up space, but also... Storing the paper records on site, I've been told, is a big fire risk. You know, it's a lot of paper in one place, um, but also security risk. A lot of the carousels that were stored in couldn't be locked. Anyone who was in um, in the practice could have accessed those records. So a security risk as well. Mm. And I mentioned in the intro about maybe some of the patient safety implications. I wondered whether you'd come across anything which suggested actually persevering with this sort of record keeping has, has safety risks yeah so one of the things i came across in my research was a um, prevention of future death report from 2020 it's january 2020 just before the pandemic and um, essentially this involved an individual who uh, unfortunately died in hospital um, and it was due to complications with the contraceptive pill um, and the coroner's report and, and the in inquest made note of the fact that this individual had uh, been visiting a GP as a, as a visiting patient and eventually registered there, continued to be prescribed the contraceptive pill, um, 
eventually went to an out-of-hours doctor complaining about feeling unwell um, and unfortunately died shortly after that. Um, the inquest made note of the fact that the out-of-hours doctor had no access to her GP record, um, no electronic access to the record. And following that, the GP that she had registered at um, told the inquest that they had not received her full GP record from her previous practice. So there is a wider issue there of um, sort of continuity and um, you know, ensuring that records are up to date and that they're easily accessible. And I think that's part of the wider conversation around digitization in the NHS. That's why this is such an important thing is that people aren't in one place, um, going to one service. These services need to be able to connect and talk to each other uh, for the benefit of the patient. Mm. And I was just wondering, was there a kind of a pattern you saw about areas in the country that were kind of more advanced when it came to digitization not using these records having kind of modernized their systems or was it was it a bit more random it was a little bit more random there wasn't any sort of clear patterns of, of where digitized and where hasn't as i said sussex um told me that none of their gp practices used them i think in birmingham and solihull they had quite a good level of digitization um as i said you know there were there were 18 icbs which said they'd done no no digitization at all I think the interesting thing is um, the sort of different approaches that are being taken to it. Quite a few ICBs have said that they'd either made funding available or they'd made offers to GPs to assist with it. Um, so, for instance, in Hampshire in the Isle of Wight, uh, I believe 56 GP practices uh, have accepted an offer to move the Lloyd George records off-site, um, but they've said that they they will not be digitised, they will just be moved off-site. Um, so that means if they did need to request those those records that they would have to go to the company that's moved them off site and request that they be sent over so that causes its own problems but there wasn't much in the way of um sort of regional disparities hmm. and, and and finally do you get a sense that this is still uh, a priority that nhs england wants to see um practices sort of drive forward or i don't know maybe the dial has shifted a bit and they're like well actually this isn't this isn't the best use of, of funding or, or time perhaps as we've sort of discussed already kind of to convert these really quite old I mean I imagine some of them must go back to maybe 40 50 60 years ago you know mm, so I think there's a wider conversation about you know some of the commitments that have been made about data and digital and, and whether NHS England and the Department of Health are following through on their commitments I think we have to remember, obviously, we've had a pandemic since this commitment was made. That's thrown up its own issues. I do think there is a, a desire to see this done. But I think that, you know, the GPs, the people that are actually having to do this, want to see some more uh, forward thinking from the centre. They want to see funding. They want to see, you know, national projects. And as England have said, you know, they're committed to doing this and that they've, uh, you know, ran these pilot schemes and that there is some funding available. Um, but I think, you know, there's people on the ground that have to do this might want a bit more uh, proof in the pudding. Mm. Cool. Thanks very much, Joe. Um, let's move on to the the second topic now and, and bringing in you, Emily. And I gave a little summary summary of um, the what the data has revealed in my intro. But yeah, could you just kind of explain to listeners what this, and I believe it was leaked data, um, revealed about the experience of mental health patients in acute care? Yes, this was the first time that we've kind of seen that this has been an issue for a while um, that people have kind of been bringing up and 
it's a real concern for acute leaders and for mental health leaders. Um, but this is the first time this this leaked data set that we had as kind of a really kind of full set showing the kind of true scale of A&E delays um, and also the kind of direct um, difference between acute um, physical patients and mental health patients. So essentially um, this data was from 120 acute trusts showing um, the number of mental health attendances that breached 12 hours. And it showed that mental health patients are twice as likely to spend a very long time in A&E um, than physical patients. So um, one in five um, mental health patients attending A&E um, for mental health as their primary diagnosis are spending more than 12 hours in the department. Um, so that's you know, before a decision to admit or to discharge or transfer. Um, but the problem with mental health patients spending a long time in A&E is that it's not a safe environment for them. A lot of it is is very kind of chaotic and not very therapeutic. And a lot of the time, people, especially kind of acute and emergency care leaders, will try to ensure that there is a more therapeutic environment. So often there will be cubicles, which are quite inappropriate because they're, you know, essentially mental health patients should just kind of sit in A&E for a very long time. We spoke to one um, CEO of, of Barking um, and he was saying that one of his mental health patients stayed in the department for 21 days. We've heard of up to a month. Um, so, you know, staying physically in the department, sometimes obviously they'll be moved to side rooms or some acute trust kind of developed other kind of mental health centres that are attached. But a lot of the time it is within the actual department and there's lots of arguments going on over who should take responsibility for the patient. And do you have a sense of what is causing these delays? Why are mental health patients affected so much more? Why are they waiting so much more, so much longer in any departments? So a lot of the time, it will be waiting for a mental health act assessment. Um, so people will come in. There'll be, I mean, often people speaking to me about it is that like twelve hours does go by very, very quickly. However, um, mental health diagnosis and presentation is a lot more complex a lot of the time than, than physical presentation because you have to go through the assessments you also have to find a bed um, which is a, a very kind of big problem the reduction in mental health beds um, and availability and also um, the number of staff available mental health practitioners to staff those beds in inpatient um, mental health care has reduced um it's you know really kind of not in a good way at the moment so you have the pressures there of lack of beds you have a lack of staff in mental health to kind of look after these patients you also have increased demand however um interestingly when we when we went to nhs england about this they were actually saying that um despite a and e attendances for mental health accounting for less than three percent of all visits and actually attendance has stayed relatively flat, although there's been an increase in demand and acuity over the past four years. Actually, mental health accounts for 16% of all 12-hour weights. So clearly there's a real problem there. And a lot of it, as I said, is kind of attributed to those weights for assessments. Sometimes it can also be arguments, as I referred to earlier, between um, kind of clinical staff and, and mental health staff kind of looking at, you know, who takes the patient. So if somebody has a learning disability or autism, a lot of the time it will be, oh, should it be for social services to look after them? Um, and as we know, with um, just acute trust in general, trying to discharge the social carers is difficult. So 
there are lots of nuances to the problems, um, but a lot of it is to do with a lack of mental health nurses to staff beds, a lack of beds, um, increased pressure from acuity of illness in particular. Um, so that's kind of why they have a, a worse experience and they have to wait for longer. I thought it was interesting. There was a line, I think, in the story. It was interesting that um, it's sort of critics saying that there's been a focus on community transformation, but then this has perhaps left out a group of seriously ill patients who have a crisis and end up, you know, someone phones an ambulance or they end up in A&E simply because there's nowhere else for them to go. And community services are not geared up to deal with that level of sort of, you know, immediate mental health crisis. I wonder if you, what, what, what you think about that? Do you think that the balance of investment has been right in terms of, okay, looking after people in the community, but then also looking after people when they present to, you know, an acute hospital? So there's been a national policy focus, particularly um, from the start of the 2019 long-term plan to kind of um, build up community services, community transformation program, lots of money into kind of developing those services. And I think that there is still among national leaders um, and, you know, across the spectrum really from mental health and dementia care leaders, there is a recognition that that is a good thing and to kind of put investment into prevention and kind of crisis cafes and those kinds of things is really, really good because in the long run, it will allow people to, who do get into crisis to go to sort of places where they will be safer than if they attend A&E. However, it hasn't gone at the rate um, that the demand and the kind of acuity of illness has risen throughout the pandemic. There isn't enough community service community service transformation that happened yet. Um, and you've got that coupled with the fact that mental health beds and, and the national policy has been to reduce. Obviously, it's, it's to try and make sure that people aren't stuck in inpatient units under section for very long periods of time because it's not therapeutic for them. Um, out of area placements are really you know bad, have very bad outcomes for people. But I think there is, you know, that there's been this investment in community transformation. Perhaps it hasn't happened at the rate um, it has needed to, to allow, um, you know, these seriously ill patients to get the care that they need. And obviously that's led to a bit of a kind of a deadlock in terms of they are going to A&Es, they're waiting for a month um, and, you know, it's, it's pretty bad. So there's been lots of people saying that is it a failure of national policy um there's a program ongoing at the moment um being carried out by the national clinical director tim kendall um to try and look at the use of mental health beds whether we use too much whether we use too little and um, whether you know there needs to be more um or whether it's actually we should be shifting our focus to prevention but it's trying to ensure that this group of patients which are clearly you know suffering um in A&Es, and haven't got the crisis services that they need is trying to understand what needs to happen going forward. Yeah, absolutely. I think, tw- you know, 12 hours in any um, will only make that situation worse. And I can imagine it's also really distressing perhaps for other patients and also staff. Um, as I know sometimes these situations can just be very, very difficult to, to manage. Um, I, I, let's talk a little bit more about the, the data and um I suppose some of the the trusts that have the um the biggest problems with these these twelve hour breaches, um, were there any kind of surprising findings? Any trends you noticed in the data? So we noticed, um, particularly among those with the kind of highest proportion of twelve hour breaches, and also, um, 
what we got with this data was quite a full set of um, 120 acute trusts, but sort of pre and post pandemic for the first time. Um, so we noticed that there were some um, trusts that had kind of had their proportion increase quite significantly. Um, a lot of the trusts that cropped up um, were London trusts, um, and we spoke to quite a few emergency care leaders as well as mental health leaders in, in London. And um, that pattern is kind of been explained by London has a lot of specialist centres. So um, they've got, you know, sort of specialist beds for certain conditions. Um, a lot of the time they will treat a higher proportion of people that have come from other areas of the country and have been admitted to their hospitals. Um, so a lot of the time that will be a longer wait to find a bed. So somebody from the Midlands that has bipolar um, and needs an inpatient bed for that, um, they may you know, present to A and E um, in in London, and they will essentially have to wait for a very very long time. There there are lots of issues surrounding that, um, but it was interesting that we spoke to um, Catherine Henderson from um, Guys and St Thomas's, and she was saying that the situation has got so bad um, at her trust that the acute trust has had to commission some private beds and um, private mental health beds so that they can put the patients that are waiting for a very long time in their departments into those beds just so that they have specialist access to specialist care um, and that's she was saying to us that that's quite a strange um, and kind of unprecedented thing for an acute trust to have to do and um, however that is the kind of situation really um, you also have problems and um, sometimes not confined to London Trust but um, we actually spoke on this about this on the podcast last time where you have kind of children going on to um, you know adult wards because they're and they're not having a therapeutic time when they're there and um, because there is just such a lack of specialist beds it's a really kind of chronic lack of specialist beds and it's a bit of a mess um, and I think London is kind of bearing you know in St George's um, and Barking Hovering and Redbridge they had, you know, 40% of their mental health attendances breaching 12 hours. That's a quite a significant amount. And that's almost, you know, if you look at the average, it's sort of 20%. That's a lot more, it's like double, isn't it, those trusts. So it's like we were talking to them and they were saying that they know it's a massive problem. Um, and unfortunately, it's kind of for more investment um, from the government um, to try and plug some of that, of those gaps in specialist beds, really. And I suppose we're talking more quick fixes, not quick fixes, but kind of stop gaps rather than a, a permanent fix. But what are trusts, acute trusts doing anything else to try and make the situation a bit better for patients? Yeah, so we had um, one, so one trust in particular, one acute trust, um, University College London. Um, essentially, they had their quite a small increase. I think there was like the smallest rise that they um, recorded in 12-hour breaches. So um, this is actually not um, the acute trust that has done this, but um, Barnet Enfield, Haringey and Camden and Islington um, Foundation Trusts, essentially what they've done is they've developed um, a 24-hour mental health crisis assessment service, which essentially has um, led to that rise being kind of curbed a little bit so that it hasn't risen as fast or as, as substantially as other London trusts so essentially what that what happens with that is that um patients who would traditionally present to a and e can be directed to this service um which is staffed by mental health practitioners 
they can get advice um it's not a physical place as i understand it. i think it's more um kind of a phone line service but there's also um you know lots of kind of things in train to try and ensure that that's kind of has a physical presence but essentially that has helped to reduce the numbers that are requiring admission because it it basically allows people in crisis to access that specialist support and kind of stops that need um to go into any or to call an ambulance um and down on a nine etc so it, it sort of stems that escalation um there's also been um sort of in reference to your question about what acute trust are kind of doing to try and ensure that there's a better kind of more therapeutic environment for patients that are waiting a very long time um northern lincolnshire and gore was a, a trust that um had a we noted as having quite a significant problem they've developed like a 24 7 walk-in facility um in grimsby for patients that are in mental health crisis so people it's quite similar to camden and um islington where essentially patients can go there and they can have access to that special support so it's, it's essentially creating like a community service which is trying to prevent um the you know acute admission the inpatient admission so there are things being done there are innovations being made um but what people need um to do that is money um and we were speaking to sean devon from nhs confederation he was saying that um the nhs um has not got the investment in mental health services um from the government that it requires the long-term plan is coming to an end um financially soon and he was saying that there needs to be like a full package um for mental health before and after admission to actually stop this pressure stop the immense pressure on beds stop the a and e um crisis that we're seeing so it, it looks like it's kind of down to ensuring the government ensuring parity of esteem and i think that may be a long way off yeah i was just about to ask what what's what's actually needed in the long term to you know stop this kind of um terrible situation it just sounds like more more money parity of esteem which is sadly something that you know we've been hearing for a really really long time um i wonder do, is there any sense of kind of optimism at all from senior leaders you've spoken to i think there is from i think there's lots of innovation going on um and i i do think that those there are lots of kind of crisis cafes and lot, lots of things cropping up that are really good um but a lot of it has to be like for instance um there was an example that i was shown um in manchester where um we've got kind of churning point funding a center where they have sort of beds and um, that people can go into for seven day spells or, or 14 day spells and then um they're supported to go back into the community and, and stuff like that is really good um it's, it's sort of commissioned by the icb but it's people you know these services, ICBs, um, mental health trusts, acute trusts, they need more money and better estates as well to try and ensure um, that there is a safe environment for, for people. And it shouldn't be that it's kind of down to, obviously it's great that these innovations are happening, but there should be more money to support them. Um, you've got, we've recently done a story, um, Zoe Tidman and I on, you know, mental health estates and the fact that almost 50 bids for mental health services were, were mental health schemes sorry were turned down for the new hospitals program um unfortunately the optimism is, is not there for that because the government has not kind of accepted any of those or taken them forward and you know that doesn't kind of bode well for trying to ensure the mental health state and mental health services improve so i think it's there is reason for optimism in that there are lots of innovations happening however 
people need the money um, and support and investment to try and ensure that they're expanded and you know it's, it's only in some areas that this is happening it's it's not you know it's kind of projects cropping up in certain places but not in others so it needs to be like a national kind of you know effort to try and improve them mm. thanks very much emily i think we'd better wrap up for the podcast for this week but just a reminder to listeners our, our podcast is available every week on our website and across all my podcast channels and do join us again next week where we'll be bringing you the podcast from the NHS Comfort Expo conference. Thanks for listening and we'll see you then.